Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to The Rambling Intellect. I am John DeBerry, The Rambling Intellect, welcoming you to the show that's basically about whatever it is I feel like talking about that week. So coming off our first episode, got some good feedback. Thank you for those of you that listened and downloaded the episode. And we have a little bit of a different format here on our second episode. You know, the first episode was primarily me um, just talking about some things that I thought were important up today. Uh, but this is different. Today, I have a guest in, I guess, my office where we're recording this. There he is right there. Um, so my guest with me today is a friend of mine who I know from work. His name is Rock Neely. Uh, Rock is an associate professor of English at Gateway Community and Technical College. And he is a published author that has a new book coming out this month that is the third book of a trilogy. So he's not a one-hit wonder. He's got several that have come out and been published. And Rock, welcome to the show. Thanks, Randy. So... Um, those of you that aren't familiar with him, which I'm guessing is most of you, which is fine, um, Rock has a series of books that are about a detective agency. It's called the Purple Heart Detective Agency. And Rock, why don't you tell us a little bit about the characters, the two main characters in the book? Sure. Uh, they're both soldiers. Uh, they have returned from Iraq after uh, serving in the Army. Uh, they were both injured in the uh, Second Battle of Fallujah. And um, uh, the, the voice of the uh, narrator is uh, Clayton Grace. He is uh, a soldier and now detective who's lost one leg. And the uh, uh, second character, his best friend, is Roddy O'Malley. And Roddy lost both legs. Um, both of them uh, are struggling to reintegrate into society. Uh, in the first book, Roddy's having a substance abuse problem. And um, uh, Grace, while seeming to fit in better into society, is maybe actually fitting in worse because as we learn more as we go through the story, uh, he's living in an apartment that has a sleeping bag on the floor and nothing else in the apartment. And, you know, so his, um, his refusal almost to reintegrate into society is much more uh, internalized where, you know, Roddy, Roddy's enraged and kind of lashing out at the world. So um, we see Roddy's more, but Grace's might be a little bit more severe. I know one of the things that, um, and full disclosure to listeners, um, I've read about 75% of the first book. I wanted to get through the whole thing, but I got disrupted a couple of weeks ago because we bought a house and moved, and that held me back some. But I have read about 75% of the, book, of the first book. Weak excuse. I know. I'm sorry. I have bought the second book, though. And, uh, Very got, good. Got the short story off uh, Amazon, which we'll talk about in a second. And what I was really touched about in the first book, because I'm a vet myself. I was in the Marines. Is You present the characters as... They were friends that met in the military, went through basic together, then were in Iraq. And the way it looks, it seems like the partnership was formed is Roddy was on the verge of suicide and kind of just showed up at Grace's, at, sorry, Clayton Grace's, and he basically just took him in and made him his partner. Right, yeah. right. So uh, I think uh, the line is, um, uh, you know, Roddy has lost both legs and he has uh, gone out to the desert and, in Sonora and thought about killing himself and instead drives to uh, Clayton's house and they meet in a parking lot and uh, uh, Grace says, come on home, you can sleep on my couch. And Roddy says, I fit on a love seat. 
Yeah, and then I think, and then after that scene in the first book, is there like a two-year jump, one-year jump? Kind of a a time one, jump yeah, kind of a one-year jump, yeah. So there's a one-year jump from that uh, flashback episode where the uh, two guys um, um, are barely making it. Um, you know, it's not a situation where this is uh, a detective agency that's really bringing in the business. They're struggling um, to make ends meet on a, on a daily basis. So in book two, as a matter of fact, uh, which encapsulates uh, the year 2008, uh, they are forced into a situation where they are no longer detecting. They are actually repoing cars. Right. So that was during uh, the yeah. Great Depression. Yeah. So the great, yeah, the Great Recession of 2008, uh, you know, right after the presidential election. Then. Now, how did you come up with the names Clayton Grace, Roddy O'Malley? All right. Well, um, um. Believe it or not, I read an article that somebody said that uh, Americans uh, liked their heroes to have uh, a Puritan sort of background, although not to themselves be Puritans. And the guy actually said that their uh, last names, if the character had a last name that was somehow connected with some sort of religiousosity, that it would... um, uh, attract more readership, and so um, thus uh, Clayton Grace uh, Grace is becomes he's called Grace or Gracer by the members of his platoon, and so that's where that came from is the uh, use of uh, you know essentially a, a Christian allusion to his name Roddy O'Malley. Uh, I wanted an Irish sort of um, common man, so I want yeah. So he's more of the common man. He's the one that. Um, says things exactly as he's thinking them. He has no filter, and he's the one that everybody always loves and makes. He's he's got all the great lines. He seems to kind of be the comic relief often. In yes, the first right, time. right, right. So he says uh, in uh, one of the scenes, uh, "Wow," he says to Grace, "Wow, I never knew you were the brains of the outfit." So he <laughs> didn't. He never. He didn't even realize that he's not the brains of the outfit until you know a scene where like. Grace has to tell him what's going on. Right. And also an interesting parallel, at least from the first book, is it was my perception that Clayton's role, he's really the go out, talk to people, do the interviews, do the footwork, where Roddy is the tech guy. He's kind of presented. He can break into emails. He can hack things. Now, in your mind, did Roddy have those skills before he came on to the detective agency, or is it something he kind of found afterwards and then got good at? Um, well, I have to leap forward in the chronology to the third book in the trilogy. The third book, which is um, called The Babylon Blues, actually has a short story in it. It's short stories and novellas, and there's a short story in that book called Roddy's Soliloquy. And that is the only story uh, or only time in the three books, that 30 pages or whatever, in which Roddy actually is the narrating voice. So Roddy gets to speak, and his backstory is told in that story. And he does have those computer skills in high school, and um, uh, unfortunately he crosses the law and gets the option of prison time or uh, boot camp. And that's how that happens. Well, and I really like the the duality of – because the way you describe Roddy in the book 
is basically, for lack of a way of putting it, this hulking mass of muscle. Right. You often make, uh, like, you talk about a gorilla almost, and how a lot of times in their kind of funny scenes in the book, you describe him as basically walking around on his knuckles. Right. And like walking with his hands. And so in my mind, I because I knew when I was in the Marines, several guys who were that kind of, you know, you'd tell them to go eat a tree and they'd do it in one bite kind of guy. And I just love that duality of here's this guy who looks all gruff and muscular, yet most of what he contributes is very mental, very high tech sort of skills. Uh, yeah. And, um, um, Roddy is very physical in his uh, approach to life. Um, but this is, you know, what we're seeing is his, his physical approach to life uh, is post-war and post-injury. And so his physical therapy, when he comes back, he's missing his legs. And so he overcompensates. Right. And so uh, we have you know, a situation where he's added essentially 20 to 30 pounds of muscles uh, and they're all in his arms. You know? right. So he's, he's become this uh, hulking sort of figure um, from the waist up. Yeah, I think you often describe his hands as like catcher's mitts or baseball mitts being yeah. that big. So, yeah. So he's uh, overdeveloped in that way. So the first book is called um, The Purple Heart Detective Agency, which is the agency founded by Clayton that now they both work at. The second one's called Prince of the Border. And the third one is called what again? The Babylon Blues. The Babylon Blues. So... Kind of in the genre of mystery detectives, you've got a lot of iconic characters like Harry Bosch and um, trying to think of the other one. Morgan Freeman played him in the movies. The name escapes me at the moment. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of what you're talking about. Um, what is his name? One of these, as soon as we're done, I'll think of it. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Um, but a lot of these iconic detective characters that have are this kind of rough macho kind of man's man you kind of went the other way in a bit going with amputees and that have drug issues to put it like a better way what made you decide to go that way because i think i personally think it's brilliant the way i'm reading it what made you decide to go more of that kind of way than with the more archetypal rustic man's man kind of guy well first of all the especially the first book. The first book is totally a modern disguise, noir, 1936, uh, hard-boiled detective story. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when they're, when they are, when they're in a situation where they have to interview a guy for the second time. And, um, so Grace goes back, knocks on the door. When the guy opens up the door, he punches him in the face. Right. Okay. That's how they, you know, he starts the interview like that. Okay. So, you know, that's very, uh, Humphrey Bogart, 1936 sort of. So everything is stylized from that and pulled, you know, so if you like that kind of period piece of the big sleep or the Maltese Falcon from Dashiell Hammett, uh, you know, that's where it's coming from. As a matter of fact, the setting of the story being in Los Angeles, uh, is be and, and moving somewhat to San Francisco is because uh, my two favorite detective writers are, are uh, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And so Los Angeles and San Francisco, uh, when I close my eyes and think of detectives, that's where they are. So that's where I wrote from. And I did spend a lot of time there in the um, 90s. Uh, I was in sales for a company here out of Cincinnati. And, and so I traveled that territory. And so I know the city pretty well. Um, 
Certainly not like that. But it's amazing how Google Earth can make you, <laughs> you, know, you can just put in an address and then you can see it. And you can actually 360 on it and go all the way around. And so a lot of the descriptions that I've seen are actually from that, which is uh, amazing. As regards to the, the, the characters uh, having their weakness, um, uh, I, I like that. I like that, um, you know, that that they're damaged goods. I mean, mm -hmm. it makes them real, you know? So, um, and these books are not reality. Okay. So, uh, things happen that can't quite happen or, or shouldn't happen anyway. Right. So, uh, uh monkeys actually ha speak at times. Uh, mm -hmm. there's a, been a monkey that speaks a word um, that we can't say here in the interview. And, um, well, that's all I'm listed on Um, both iTunes and Google play download it now. Um, as having extreme language, so it's probably, oh, okay. okay. So we're but, uh, uh, but in any event, um, so um, you know, in the second book, Roddy is having um, dreams that would uh, seem to be um, preceding the events. So he he sees into the future, as does a, a woman in the book as well. Um, and, and so so they're not reality based, but I like the fact that the characters are not Superman. And that they they do get injured and they are injured and they are damaged goods and uh, excuse me Grace uh, deals with a lot of bad dreams about the war. Yeah, it was one of the things I liked because in a lot of other detective novels and stories that I personally like, an example being uh, Michael Connelly's Harry Bosch, right, kind of a very archetype detective character. The damage always seems to be they can't have relationships, and it's like this internal stuff. But I like the fact that there's a physicality limit your character that, that plays well like uh the example you talked about where they do the second interview and roddy punches him what i found so funny about that is as that um, there's a point later in the book where that guy the guy he punched who uh, is having a basically a fight with grace and he's winning and then and you're like oh what's going to happen then all of a sudden roddy in this baboon rage form beats the tar out of him and i think that works so well because there is that physical limitation. I think that plays really good. Yeah, and, um, and and Roddy is, you know, I mean, he is enraged at the world. You know, he's the guy that's standing on the beach in the night, you know, just shrieking at the heavens of, you know, how could I lose my legs? I mean, right. other people lose their legs. But I am the best soldier that anybody ever saw. I was the badass of all the badasses, and I'm the one that loses my legs? That's That's inconceivable and unacceptable right and and it, so you know and he still sees it as unacceptable mm -hmm. but that's his current situation yeah but he also has a selflessness to him yes because i know in the one of the scenes you point out in the first book uh is the scene where both grace and roddy are in boot camp and one of the other guys in their platoon looks like he's about to crack and so roddy intentionally does something to draw the ire of the drill instructors to get them off him yeah, as a, as a soldier that has been through boot camp, how did that play for you when you read it? Very realistic uh, to me. As a matter of fact, I remember a couple of guys doing, in my platoon, doing something similar. Uh, the story that comes to my mind is we had a guy in our platoon. He was a good guy. I don't even remember his first name. His last name was Erdman. And he just had a hard time picking up things. And... We were doing this exercise in the squad bay. We were practicing getting on and leaving a ship because there's certain protocols you sp you have to follow. Like you go up, you salute the officer of the day, request permission to get on, you know, to embark the ship and so forth. 
and he couldn't quite get it right when we were practicing and we knew he was going to get nailed. And one of the other guys who was a leader in the platoon, his name was Recruit Ford. I'll never forget this. He was up before Erdman and I knew he had it down yet. He got up in front of the drill instructor to practice and he looks at him and goes, sir, Recruit Ford, request permission to get on the boat, sir. And it was totally wrong. And of course he makes him bend and thrust and is screaming at him. And then when Urban come up and flubbed a bit, he just waved him off because he was so mad at Ford. So I, to me, that resonated a lot being in the military. Yeah. And, um, the kid, uh, who, uh, doesn't do well, uh, is a minor character throughout his name's fortune. Um, and, uh, so he's a, you know, he's a skinny black kid from the Bronx or something like that, that, you know, doesn't have any future. So he ends up in the service and, and, uh, but he's not really cut out to get there. And, and as we kind of learn through backstories later on, uh, you know, is this, that platoon, the platoon made a man of him, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so then he shows up later on his stories and he's a successful security, um, guy for, you know. Katy Perry and places like that. You know, he, he he escorts people to you know the Universal Studios and things like that to, for concerts and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so let's jump back if we can to what sure. caused the the book to happen. Um, so it was always on my bucket list to write a book like you know to write a detective novel or a novel in general. And um, I was my sister introduced me to a guy named Robert Beatty. Robert was a, uh, not a novelist, but a book uh, author. He had written several nonfiction books, and the most notable of it of them was The Hunt for BTK, The Bind, Tortured, Kill, uh, Serial Killer in Wichita, Kansas. And Robert's actually involved in the capture of um, the guy. So he serialized his book and sold it to the Wichita newspaper. They were publishing a chapter every Sunday. And um, BTK started responding to him by oh, putting wow. um, putting letters uh, to Robert in the back of library books that would, people would find at the Wichita Public Library in the downtown branch and then other branches. And so they eventually um, put the entire book onto a website, the FBI did, and uh, advertised it through the newspaper that the whole book was available online. And then... Um, they interviewed every single person whose IPS address ended up visiting that site. So if anybody that went to the, uh, the site that had the book, um, the FBI knocked on your door later. Wow. And so, uh, that's how they caught BTK. So anyway, so I was editing for Robert and one day he called me and said, Hey, I put my book on, my father died and I put my book on hold for a year and. I thought what he was—he was calling to fire me. Uh, so, uh, but he said that he said that no, that no. What we're going to do is we're going to change hats, and uh, I'm going to edit for you for a year, and so we'll we'll get you published. And so I said, wow, that's awesome. You know, thank you so much for the opportunity. And he said, I'll call you next Saturday, have a plot and a protagonist figured out. And, and no I, pressure there. No pressure there. You know, so so even though it, uh, it was a lifetime goal, I had actually seven days. And um, so um, I got off the phone and I, you know, I teach at a community college. And at the time that I was doing that, this would have been four years ago. You know, we had a lot of um, vets in our classrooms. Uh, I know you did, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so did I. And and so I was trying to think of who should be the um, uh, heroes. 
And I thought, well, it's got to be a veteran. You know, it's got to be somebody that came back from this war, served the country, and is a hero, a true hero. <laughs> and uh, but then, you know, the country doesn't treat them right in return, and so they have to be become a detective out of, right. as a last resort. It's not their plan to become a detective, a private detective, gumshoe, living hand to mouth. Right. right. So that wasn't the plan. Um, so anyway, and then the, this is all. Um, Serendipity then happened. So I decided that, and I'm laying in bed, surfing. Oh, and before you go, spoilers, is, I think you're getting ready to talk about the thing that's a big plot device in the first. Oh, well, yeah, so spoilers. I was just going to say that um, um, that uh, I saw a scene on a Nova special as I was flashing through channels, and it was a, um, a phantom limb pain uh, patient who was experiencing phantom limb pain in an arm, and they used a mirror light box to uh, have him put his arm up against it, and it reflected the image of his other arm where his right arm was missing, I guess. And they um, had a masseuse come out and massage his existing arm, which was reflected in the box as the missing arm. And he actually experienced um, relief. And I, <laughs> I think I may have actually jumped out of bed and yelled, Eureka. <laughs> 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 so that was that was it. I did that right then. I knew, oh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a soldier who's missing a limb, right? And so phantom limb pain then becomes a a, a plot device. And the big and, and yeah, because it's one of the pretty much the driving thing within the first book is yeah. a lot of research itself surrounding that. Which leads me to a question I I was curious about. So you have the characters idea for the character they kind of come into being more through you seeing the phantom limb pain and that helps you do the first book you now go into the second book and you don't at least in my mind you now don't have a plot device and the characters as tied together conceptually right. as they were in the, the first actual, so how did, the actual first book is two books um one of the books is is in regular type, and the other one is in italics. And there is, um, uh, you know, there's a novella hidden within, right? Um, and what was interesting, for instance, the first chapter in the first book was actually in the manuscript that I turned over to the edit, you know, to my editor the first time. It was chapter four, and. Um, you know, we, they had readers and, and the publisher and the editor, and they both came back and they said, well, well that, um, uh, you know, potential suicide scene with Roddy, you know, that was moving. Mm -hmm. And so it became the lead, you know, so it, it flipped the order a little bit. But since, you know, the there's two books in there, there's the case, the, the case of the missing musician or magician, and there's the... Uh, uh, backstory of how they met in boot camp the two guys grace and roddy and how they uh, get injured and so those two stories run tandem and um all i knew at the time that i started was that i wanted the climax of both stories to happen in chapters that were next to each other right okay so then i re-engineered backwards to make that happen Mm -hmm. in the book so that you know so the chapters are spaced so that the, the the climax to the detective story and the climax to the war story happen 
essentially for the reader simultaneously. Gotcha. Okay, so that was how that was engineered. Um, the so that that's the first book. The second book. Okay, so uh, this is one where Eric probably owes me a beer, my publisher. Uh, the second one again, the Prince of the Borders. The Prince of the Borders is the second book, and uh, so it came out in April of 2016. So um, so roughly what uh, 16 months ago, and um, so. Um, Eric, in passing, said after you know, and, and by the way, the Purple Heart did sell very well. So it was uh, a situation where you know I, I was very happy with that, and I think they were happy with that. So we we wanted a second book. It was supposed to come out in October. Um, my father got ill, and then I had um, some pneumonia issues, and so the book came out in April. So full six months later than what we planned, but. Um, uh, Eric led me astray. Oh my gosh. So this is one of those things where uh, like if you're playing golf, somebody asks you whether you inhale or exhale in your backswing and then you can't golf the rest of the day because right, you don't yeah. know the answer mm -hmm. to that. So he asked me this question. Uh, he said, are you a pantser or are you an outliner? I said, I don't even know what you mean by the yeah, question. I'm looking at you like, what? And <laughs> And I said, what? Well, I don't understand the question. He said, well, do you write by the seat of your pants or do you do an outline? Well, the first book was highly outlined. Okay, so every chapter I knew what was the initial scene and how each chapter needed to end. Sometimes the characters would actually surprise me and do crazy things in between the beginning and the end of that chapter. But I always tried to get them back onto the path. So they did, like, I actually dreamed dialogue for a while when I was in the middle of writing the first book, which was really odd, you know. So I can imagine. So, you know, so I was, like, having conversations. So, you know, you know, so Roddy and Grace, and you can read it and determine, you know, if they're my id or ego or whatever they are. Um, but uh, it's two different versions of my own personality. But regardless, um, I um, said, well, I'm an outliner. Or at least I was on the first book. But I think I'm really a pantser. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, okay. So anyway, so I wrote the first 60 pages of the second book. And um, I discovered I was not a pantser. <laughs> and um, so it was just meandering. And, you know, they were kind of sitting in a um, coffee shop. And, and uh, not a whole lot of detectives. You know, there was a lot of dialogue going on. But nothing was actually happening. And so... Anyway, then one day I saw a picture, and I, it's in Google Images. You can go to Radio Land. Uh, it was Google Images, and I think I looked up uh, something that I read in a book, and it was the Marsh People of Basra. That was the actual... The Marsh People of Basra. Basra. That huh. was what I'd heard a reference to them, and I went and looked, and my mind was blown. So there is a um, race of people okay, called the Madan, M-A and then a weird apostrophe and then another A-D-E-N or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a half, of, a half a million of these people that actually lived on the swamps in southeastern Iraq. Wow. Um, lived on rafts. Sometimes they raised their uh, livestock on floating rafts. Uh, and it was a really wild part of the country. There were actually still, there still are, existing lions that live there. And uh, the weirdest lions you'll ever know, they actually fish. 
Okay, the lions. The lions fish. Yes, they drive the fish into the shallows, and and the you know the males drive the, the fish into the shallows, and the females drag fish out onto the bank for so no, and things. So no lions no, on the shore with a pole. No, they don't have a pole, but they do fish. So I you know so I, I thought it was a really fascinating area, and so since I knew I was going to have to throw away those sixty pages of uh, Roddy and Grace drinking tea, I <laughs> I decided that. Um, the book would encompass um, at least Grace going back to Iraq, where he'd sworn he would never go back because he lost a leg there. Right. right. And um, so um, then, then it was just a, a matter of engineering a story in which Grace would have to return to Iraq on a detective mission as opposed to a, a war mission. I got you. So anyway, so that's how the second book started. So... Based on a picture. Based on I a saw picture. a picture and I said, okay. So what attracts you, like when you're looking for ideas for the book, is you have the first, the second, and the third one. How do you know when you found a plot mechanism? Like what attracts you to a plot mechanism? Wow, I wish I knew that. Um, I think with, I'm a movie buff and I, I know you are too. Um, I think I want something that projects me to a place that I've never been before. Okay. And um, so I, do, I didn't want... You know, and I didn't want the Purple Heart Detective Agency. I didn't want it to be um, the same sort of thing that you have seen before. I didn't want it to be the Rockford Files with Iraq War veterans. Okay. Right. So uh, you know, I did, and I like the Rockford Files, but I didn't want it to be that. Okay. So I wanted it to be a unique vision, and so I wanted it. To, so so there's you know so and for the readers and and to make a name for myself as a writer, I wanted to be in an different place than anybody else and so um and that's very difficult so you know uh, i mean after i came out with this book um um harry potter author um jk rowling yeah jk rowling actually came out with a book and that with a detective with one leg i mean you know, so it happened. so you are the originator yeah these so, other people you know, are so, following uh, you yeah so you know so it's difficult it is difficult to have a unique vision um like i said you know that was uh, um, I don't know exactly how to tell you where those ideas come from. You know, sometimes you just feel like it's a you're a conduit almost, right? So here's one thing, really weird thing um, that happened in the second book. So um, I have a scene, and without yeah, spoiler alert, I have a scene in which um, the guys are in a, a vehicle, a French um, army vehicle, and they're traveling. Uh, somewhere between Abu Ghraib and uh, Nazaria. And they get stopped at a checkpoint. Okay? Yeah. And there's a woman in the back of the vehicle. And so they don't want the, actually to expose her to danger, so they don't want to have to open the vehicle. But the guy's raising, you know, a crazy Arab guy with an AK-47 is waving it around saying, open the vehicle or else. And so they feel like they got to open up the back door and show the woman that's back there. And so anyway, so I'm typing the scene. It's like a, maybe a Friday afternoon and I'm home and I'm working on a book. And anyway, so in, you know, I'm by myself. I write this scene and I have the guy open the door. And the Arab with the AK-47, all of a sudden these lines are coming out of my fingertips. I, he throws himself to the ground and says, the Black Queen has returned. I... 
Did not have that in anything that I had written. So no idea where no that came idea. from. No idea. And so I stopped and I got up and I went and got something to drink and I came back and looked at it and I said, well, I wonder if there's a Black Queen of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The Black Queen of Iraq was named Queen Pujab or something like that. Mm -hmm. And hers was the only tomb never discovered by Tomb Raiders. And so all of her belongings are in a museum under the, um, um, the uh, well, Pyramid of Ur, oh. which is, in all places, just north of Nazaria, where my guys are in this scene. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and I thought, how the hell did that happen? You know, and my wife says, oh, you read it someplace, you're always looking at stuff. <laughs> I don't think I did, it just came out. So, you know, so uh, the Queen Punjab wanted to... Um, let so, herself be known again. She just wanted so, to come out yeah, again she through you. Come out again through me. Yeah, so it was a contest. So you know. So anyway, so then I did re-outline a little bit to incorporate that as a plot device as well. Okay. Later. So it's really just something hits you. Yeah, something you know, hits you. Eureka me, yeah. kind so, of moment. Yeah. So anyway, so that was a weird one though because I had no idea that there was such a person in history, and then she turned out to be an important person to the history of that actual geographical territory that the characters were in at that time. <clears throat> which which kind of leads me to a, a question that I've, I've had. You always hear people, when talking about becoming a writer, they always say, write what you know. Now, from what I know about you, um, you did explain a little bit about the L.A. You never really lived there, but you've been there a lot. Oh, but yeah. you're not a veteran. No. You are not an amputee. So how did you go about trying to write authentically for the, I mean, if we follow the write what you know, I mean, this doesn't seem like something you you would know, but from reading it, you do a very good job. How well, did you I try did, to find I, that voice? Yeah, well, I did interview a lot. I took a lot of uh, young vets back uh, from Iraq and from Afghanistan um, to breakfast or to lunch, uh, Panera Bread or wherever, and we, we sat and, you know, I, I remember having a, a kind of a funny moment where one of the guys whose uh, MOS was um, teaching other um, other soldiers how to use a salt knife. Um, for those of you that don't know, MOS stands for Military Occupational Specialty. It's basically your job when yeah. you're in the ring. And his MOS was teaching other soldiers how to kill somebody with a knife. Okay, mm -hmm. he was in. He was he stationed in a boot camp, and he taught people how to kill people with knives. And so anyway, so I took you to breakfast because I wanted to know about that. And so anyway, so this guy is sitting there while we're having breakfast at, at um, you know, at some place. And, mm -hmm. and I look over to the table next to me as he's getting really into his subject matter about cutting throats and things and, and how what will bring down a person immediately and you know, what leaves some fight into them, you know. Right. You know so it's normal and, breakfast table yeah, conversation. Yeah. And I look over and, the, and there's these two horrified looking women. <laughs> So uh, we had to calm it down a little bit, yeah. just you know, until they finished their breakfast. And, and, and imagine this lady looking stunned at you all with like a fork full of scrambled <laughs> eggs halfway to her mouth, just shaking in fear. Yeah. So anyway, so I so I did, you know, and I did. Um, I didn't use any of their stories per se. Um, the most touching story that I ever got from a soldier, believe it or not, was um, from somebody that worked in the mailroom. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, he was a Marine, and he got dinged uh, in battle enough that it took him off the front lines. He was in, the, you know, in a hospital or something for a little bit, not enough to get him out of the out of his unit or out of the service in particular, but um, off the front lines. And so they reassigned him to the um, uh, post office, which he thought would be a really easy gig, right? So he thought that would be, you know, as far as a daily assignment, you know, right? You know, but having done that job part time. No, it's not. <laughs> so, but he was in a really hot zone with lots of casualties. And there were letters arriving every day for somebody who had died the day before. And wow. Yeah, he said it was terrible. He suffered from depression after that, you know, because he had to repackage those brownies that came from the guy's grandma. Um, to send back because the guy was dead, you know, and had died yeah. while the package was in transit. And he said, you know, that was the worst um, job he'd ever had and will ever have, you know. And, yeah. and I, I didn't use any of their stories per se, you know, because I didn't want to steal anything. Um, but I tried to appropriate their language, uh, which you know, in particular in Roddy's case, right. uh, you know, so uh, so uh, it's salty, shall we say. Very much so. But, uh, but again, having being a vet myself, you really nailed it on that. Um, I mean, a couple of things that I just I brought me right back to when I was in the Marines was the use of cussing and insults as a relationship. It's a builder. It's a sign of brotherhood. Like I would do something, you man, fuck you. I don't mean that literally. It's right. like I would say that because I care about you, and that's right. Very I think there's an actual interchange, and in maybe the first book in it where one of them says "fuck you" and he says "I love you too." Yeah, I think you're right. right. I think they yeah, so that yeah. So so that you know, I found that very authentic, which is why I was curious about that. So we have the three books, and what's the new one called? Uh, the new one's called The Babylon Blues. But it, there's also, along with the new novel, there's a short story? Uh, it's a novella. A novella? Um, How'd that come about? <laughs> well, it came about because I came in so far over word count that um, Eric couldn't publish it all in a single book. Um, now, who is Eric? Eric, Eric Beebe is the publisher and founder of uh, Postmortem Press. Uh, it is a um, thriller, mystery, and horror um, indie publisher. Uh, so he's an independent publisher, and so uh, it's not an easy go out there to be in the book business these days. But Eric left corporate America to follow his heart. And, Are they based uh, out of Cincinnati? Yep, based out of Cincinnati. So uh, how the book ended up after I had it done, okay, so I did finish it before I, I sought to publish it. Um, I met with um, a number of um, uh, different publishers, contacted different publishers, uh, got some rejection letters. Um, talked with a number of different agents. Uh, this is back before the first book. Yeah, we were trying to find a publisher yeah. for the and, original. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, I discovered all the um, all the agents, at least that I talked to, were all frustrated writers. Uh, one of them said, "I love the book. All we got to do is change all the characters to become women, and it's very sellable." <laughs> I said. I love the book. We just have to change everything about it. Yeah. So I said, eh, no, I'm not doing that. Um, and then another person said, love the book. All we got to do is in the two stories, you know, in the first book, the war story and the detective story, all we got to do is make Roddy and Grace get crazier and crazier as they go until 
by the end, we're no longer sure whether what's happening is um, in their own minds or is actually really happening. We just have to like blur reality and madness by the end of the book. So completely take it away from a gumshoe detective story and make it a psychological thriller. Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, But they love the book. Yeah, and I said, that would be a great book. You should write that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not this book. So anyway, so I am, and you know, I'm small enough uh, as a writer, you know, as far as the number of copies and stuff that I, I sell that uh, it didn't really make sense to have an agent, you know, give away 15%. And I'm not sure anybody would want to work for 15% of what I bring in right now. Uh as my wife says, keep your day job. <laughs> um, so, um, but anyway, I don't remember what the question was at this stage. Um, the question know. was, how did you wind up with this novella? Oh, yes. Okay. So, so the third anyway, book so, and the novella right, at the same well, time. Okay. So, um, there was still, there was, there was still, and there, and there will be more Roddy and Grace down the road. Although I think the next thing I'll do will be something different, you know, just to give myself, um, a fresh view rather than, you know, a fourth um, detective, uh, Purple Heart Detective series story. But in any event, um, so I sat down. Oh, well, this is a, a huge conceit right here at the outset. Um, so one of my favorite books is um, um, is an Ernest Hemingway, and uh, it's the, um, the stories that, that, that uh, Charles Scribner and Sons put together to um, form a um, short story book called The Nick Baker Stories. And um, they weren't, I'm probably getting that wrong, that name wrong, Nick Adams Stories, excuse me. Um, Nick Baker is the guitarist playing at my grand opening next week. Oh, so okay. Wrong guy. <laughs> Nick, the Nick Adams Stories. Anyway, Hemingway wrote these stories over the course of his life in maybe five different volumes of short stories. And so there might only be two of those stories in each of his um, collections. And then somebody noticed over time that those stories were told from the time that Nick Adams was maybe 12 mm -hmm. until he was in his 40s. And they actually have a story arc to them. And so then they took those stories out of the individual um albums that they were in eventually and, and um, collected them in a single book. And so they were written individually, but they could be read as a book. Okay. So I love that concept. And so, um, and other people have done similar sort of things. Um, uh, Lori King has done a similar thing with, uh, I think it's called Mary Russell's war. She writes a, uh, um, Mary Russell is her protagonist. Mary Russell in the book is married to Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Okay. And so she did a, a similar sort of thing where she has short stories uh, that work together that way. Anyway, so I decided to write a uh, uh, series, uh, a third book to the detective series in which I, they're short stories. And, and when they get beyond maybe 40 or 50 pages, they no longer a short story. They're by definition they're kind of a novella, right? So, which is just Italian for short novel. Um, so, in any event, um, I, I outlined. Remember, I'm an outliner now. Right. I've, I've determined that. So, I outlined the story arc. Okay, and by the time I finished all the stories, I was way 
third of a word count. Okay, what Eric can publish in a book. Right. So um, we kept one story out for maybe an anthology down the road, a story called Windfalls. Um, so, um, and uh, then uh, there's two stories that are out on the web right now as a free download. Uh, those are called uh, Friends with Benefits and Fiends with Benefits. Which, so. side note, if you look it up on Amazon and you get it for free, it, the title of it will say friends slash fiends with benefits. That's yeah. the way the title will appear. Just yeah, I got uh, it, I got it last night, so that's how I knew. Yeah, so you can uh, go to um, my Amazon page, Rock Neely. Uh, just type that in on your search, Neely N E E L L Y two E's two L's, and then you can go there and get the uh, free download from there. Um, yeah, it came out two days ago, um, and. Uh, was number one on nice. Amazon, so uh, that was nice. So, and it was uh, by the end of the day, Lisa Scottolini, who is a pretty famous author of mysteries, had passed me by. By so I was never finished the day one at number two, but I passed her back on week day two. So I don't know where <laughs> I. So I don't know where I'm. You know, but um, not in books. You know, not in book sales, but in the in the. Um, Category of the short fiction, at least at this stage. So the, the the short stories themselves, did they come out of like ideas trying to write the third book that just didn't pan out? So you took them a different way, or were they original thoughts? Well, they were original thoughts. Um, some of them might have been just based on a snippet of a line, like you know, something that I thought Roddy should have a chance to say. You okay. Know? So something like that. Um, so the way the book is, the, the third book. Um, and Grace explains this in the prologue that um, it turns out that book one and book two were both um, journals and um, that his um, psychologist in, in um, Ramstein, Germany, when he came through after being injured, that he saw a psychologist after losing his leg and the psychologist suggested that he uh, keep a journal of his thoughts. Okay. And she thought that that would help him with his PTSD issues and so that's what and so he he finds himself struggling to write these thoughts down because he doesn't have an audience and he doesn't know who he's actually writing to and so he determines that it will be his brother who he's estranged from he hasn't seen for 17 years and so he's writing to his brother so anyway so the first two books then we just know the, oh those are those journals and so then he says but you know I told you about our big two cases that we've had, but you know, we've had all these other cases. We've been open for, you know, for three years now mm -hmm. as a detective agency. And sometimes the cases only last a day or. Now, when you say third book, you mean the third novel or the. Um, okay. So, well, it's not a novel. I mean, it's all short. It's all short stories. Okay. Right. So, so there's the so, three books about the Purple Heart Detective Agency that are novels. Mm, mm, nope. Nope. Okay, you got it I'm wrong. Totally wrong. Okay. <laughs> Purple Heart Detective Agency is book one. It's a novel. Uh, Prince of the Border is book two. It's a novel. Book three is called um, The Babylon Blues. Right. And it is all, all short stories. All short stories. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so these are cases. Um, you know, so there's a dozen. So, um, and uh, they are spaced throughout the book with one page vignettes of Roddy and Grace um, sitting in the back of a van on a stakeout. Oh, okay. Okay, so there's um, so there's like twelve stories, mm -hmm. and then like eleven of these one-page vignettes in which, um, you know, you know the conversations that two guys who know each other really well might have 
at three o'clock in the morning, sit in the back of a van after being there for nine hours. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so reminds me, um, Jim. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Jim Butcher. A lot of people know him because he does the Harry Dresden series, and one of his books in the Dresden world that's not a Dresden novel is a book very similar to that called Side Jobs, which is a bunch of just little short stories from different characters. Yeah, right. That Dresden, very similar world. concept. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, so anyway, so um, uh, they're all short cases. And I ended up way over, way over um, word count, and so we stripped the largest of the of the novellas out, a 53-page story uh, called A Brand New Me, and published that separately. So two books actually came out yesterday, and uh, two days ago they came out in electronic format on Amazon, and now they are out and available uh, for shipping in paper form. Uh, and we have, I think we have eight signings. Right now, for different, um, um, you know, meet and greet and um, selling the book set up around and over the next six weeks or so, we have eight different signings set up, and it'll probably end up being about ten. So now, you've had these characters from page one, book one, to now. How would you say they've developed, or as how is writing for them developed over these different works? Uh, Roddy's changed more, um, so he has a, a relationship now. He's actually seeing a woman uh, named Karen, and so that, you know, so he has the um, uh, relationship. Um, Grace is the guy that you know has his heart on his sleeve always, and it always fall. You know, he always falls for the client, right? You know, and so um, you know. So kind of the the pattern for the books is for, you know, Grace is going to get his heart stomped flat, you know, sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So um, there's that pattern. Um, I did want to change up the third book a little bit and so I could give myself, like say, breathing room to do something else for a year as I write a fourth book, but it won't be in this series. So, uh, so the third book is a little bit different as far as the relationship, but, you know... Um, he does fall for a gal, and it's probably not going to work out, you know. So, anyway, so I, all three books have the same. Gotcha, yeah. Um, romantic, I'm kind of seeing that in the first yeah. book where I'm at. Yeah, so the romantic arc is going to be um, the same for him and foreseeable future. True. Yeah. So I'd like to take you back a bit because you essentially had an idea, wrote a book without an agent, with no pre-publisher, and found a publisher and got it published. Mm -hmm. And that's the dream of a lot of writers. Right. So I'd like to kind of take you back a bit till before you got that publishing deal. Okay. And, and talk about what that was like. Like how tough is it to really write a book to put the effort into it knowing you have no publisher for this? Well, I guess I wouldn't write a book if I was out there um, unless you can't not write a book. Right. Um, stories kind of needs to come out. You yeah, you know, I mean, you know, if you're a writer, I, I've written always. Uh, I've always, you know, so from, you know, seventh grade or whatever. As a matter of fact, you know, the, the book cover is painted by a good friend of mine. The new book of the Babylon Blues is painted, the cover is painted by a good friend of mine, Vaughn Pounds. And uh, when Vaughn and I were in eighth grade, probably 13 years old or 14 years old, we were walking home from school. And I remember asking him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said he wanted to be a, an artist. And I said, I want to be a writer. And, uh, you know, so then he paints my book cover 
40 years later. So, you know, it took a long time, but we got her done. It was destiny. Yeah, so it took a long time. So, you know, I think if you're a writer, you know, and you just, you got to, you know, this is not my first novel, by the way, okay? The Purple Heart Detective Agency is not my first book. There are two more mm-hmm. um, that I've written before that are sitting, I think one's in a case in the garage, and one of them is in the... Um, all closet on the top shelf. <laughs> so they're not very good. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, um, I'm trying to think what the second one title. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the title of the second one is a good title, but uh, well, not a very good book. It's called The Crybaby Blues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it takes place with an FBI agent in the days right after the uh, Pentagon is. Um, Nearly destroyed by the plane on 9/11. Gotcha. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and you know, people are reeling, and um, so, and basically, somebody gives him, you know, the uh, advice, quit being a crybaby. You know, so it happened, and we got to get over it, and stand up, and wipe off your nose, and wipe the blood off your nose, and get back, and yeah, do what the FBI's got to do. So it's kind of like, look, if you have this story, just write it. Write it. If you have the story you want to tell, just write it and don't think about that. Right. And then what I did after I said, here's the process that I went through. Okay. So I went and I read um, some articles in Writer's um, Digest magazine about how to do a pitch. And essentially, it tells you to, and this is, you know, is you need an elevator presentation, you know, they yeah. have, you know, they, like three minutes, I think. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. So, you know, how can you, well, you got, even shorter than that, you got to oh. have the elevator presentation is, uh, make your presentation on the floors between, you know, from the time the doors close to the doors open on the next thing. So get it that short. And then from there, then, yeah, you work on your three minute pitch. Um, and your, so your elevator pitch kind of has to be, I think mine was, um, this book is the X Files meets um, what was it called? The um, now I've forgotten the word. Uh, lock what was the military? The it was a, a military movie. Uh, the Locker, no, the Hurt Locker, Hurt Locker. Oh, okay. oh yeah, so that was a pitch. I'm sorry, I forgot the term. Yeah, sorry. Right. Uh, so yeah, so it was the uh, it was the X Files meets the Hurt Locker. That was my. That was your. That's my elevator pitch, and then I, you know, two guys comes back injured, PTSD, started detective agency. That was pretty much the elevator pitch, and then you know, then you can go into some stuff, and uh, so after I practiced that pitch thing a little bit into the mirror at home, I um, started attending writers conferences. And um, so at these writer conferences, a lot of times there'll be either agents there or publishers, and um, uh, you can pay to pitch them. So you might pay $20 to get 20 minutes of their time, okay? That sort of thing. And then so basically you're paying them to pitch them, and they basically get all this money for saying, I would assume, no, most of the time. Most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, most of the time. And um, so anyway, um, that's that's how it started. So I uh, I went to these writers uh, workshops and um, and networked with people. Found out you know found other people that were doing it. And one day um, I saw a thing you know thriller mystery horror publisher interested in new work. And um, so I pitched Eric and and uh, he bought it. So where'd you find that ad at? Was it in a writer's magazine or? Uh, no, it was. Um, 
the University of Miami in Oxford, Ohio, uh, had a writer's workshop called Mad Anthony, the Mad Anthony workshops, and uh, it was in Hamilton, Ohio, and so uh, I went to it and uh, pitched Eric at that place, and he said yes. And he said yes. He said he wanted to hear more, and said you have it done. I said yeah, it's done. So, and he, I think. Maybe had me send him, you know, the first four chapters, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, thank goodness, right? Because yeah. it was chapter four that ended up being chapter one. Right. So anyway, so we went from there. So. So then, what's it like? You get whatever in that process you would call the approval letter. What went through your head as soon as you got that? Was it a phone call? Was it a physical letter, an email that said, "Yes, I want to publish this"? Oh well, it was. A, it was. Um, mine was weird. Mm -hmm. Because okay, you're right. I told you there's the two stories. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the uh, detective story and the war story. Okay, so Eric called me, I think, and he said, "Hey, we want to buy the book." I said, "Great." He said, "But we got a request." I said, "What's that?" And I had written the book like this. I had written the detective story. In the voice that you are familiar with, okay, right. in Grace's voice. Then I had written all the flashback sequences in second person, um, present tense. So I had it all, you are. So it would be like, you wake up, you see the people outside. Right. Kind of like the brain telling the individual person right. what's going and so, on. And what I was trying to do is I was actually trying to, because I've always heard that, the um, the instance of what's so terrifying about post-traumatic stress disorder is that the person is not experiencing it in past tense. Mm -hmm. They're experiencing the terror of the war event as if it's happening to them again. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember we used, a couple years ago, we had um, some classes dealing with how to deal with PTS vets in our classes. And I remember them going over that. Yeah. So anyway, so, so because I, I maybe I, that's where I may have got mm -hmm. it you know, so from that workshop. And so I they said, it's happening to them again. So when they're having a PTSD event, they're re-experiencing the moment that is giving them that panic attack as if it's happening right then. So I decided to write it in present tense as if it was actually happening to the person. And so I tried to do it that way. And they hated it. <laughs> so so uh, they said, oh, yeah, well, uh, nice try. But we love, you know, we love Grace's voice. Mm -hmm. um, so they said, so as long as you go back and rewrite every other chapter to Grace's voice instead of whatever that was. So um, would that be one of those cases of maybe the English professor in you being coming out too much than maybe it should have. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. You know, but, um, you know, just things like that do happen. I, I remember reading afterwards, you know, to, to, to soothe, you know, uh, you know, um, a soothing balm to my ego after, <laughs> after having to rewrite it all was um, that I read um, that Harper Lee, who wrote um, Kill Mockingbird, right. uh, when she sent her manuscript in uh, to... Harper and Rowe or whoever published her, uh, Collier or someplace. Anyway, when they um, got the book, they wrote her back and they said, yeah, we'll publish it. We don't like it very much. 
thought, we'll publish it. They said, but what we really like is the couple flashback chapters that you have when Scout, the woman, is a little girl. They said, those are good chapters. The rest of it, yeah, it's just a regular old novel, you know, so. Um, and so she said, well, I can do more of that. And so she took the book back, and, you know, so we... Um, we did get to read that book a couple of years ago. Ghost Set of Watchmen actually mm-hmm. did come out, you know, 50 years later or whatever like that. So we can see Scout as a grown woman. That book was actually written before, you know, the Kill a Mockingbird book, which was um, written as a... Uh, so she published the book. They liked parts of it, didn't others. And she basically had to swallow her pride to go back and rewrite the whole they didn't, thing. They didn't publish it. Ghost Set of Watchmen, they actually... Um, so one of the greatest books she of all time that. came from her having to swallow her pride and rewrite the whole thing from a perspective yeah. they liked. And then it sold 15 million copies. So, and she never wrote another book. Yeah. It was cash royalty checks for the rest of her life. So it was good advice. It was really good advice. You know, and uh, the, the rest of that, the, you know, as Paul Harvey, the rest of that story was, is that when she sold that book, she was actually staying in uh, her best friend growing up's apartment. The guy that lived next door to her growing up was uh, Truman Capote. And uh, he let her um, stay in his apartment. And when she got that feedback, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, turned it in. It came out at the same time as um, In Cold Blood. That was a good time for both of them. And they both made a ton of money. But um, uh, both books were put up for a National Book Award. And uh, To Kill a Mockingbird won, and In Cold Blood did not. And Truman Capote never spoke to her again. Oh, ouch! How about that? That's right? harsh. Yeah. So you've written these books. So kind of so what what drew you? I mean, you could have written anything. What drew you to the mystery genre? Oh, I I, I mean, I've read a ton of it. Um, so I kind I guess I kind of put myself into um, a genre of. Um, well, there's been a couple times over the history of uh, detective fiction where, like, um, film and fiction, you know, the book form and the film form dovetailed, mm-hmm. right? And it, that happened in the 40s with, um, you know, um, Big Sleep and Maltese Falcon and, you know, um, all those sort of noir films. Um, and then it seems to have happened again now over the course of the the last 10 years or so with, uh, hyper violence, you know, that, yeah. so, um, uh, in particular, like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, savages, mm-hmm. uh, Don Winslow's book, the cartel, uh, those sort of books all seem to have dovetailed with the film industry. And so they're presenting a kind of a, a monolithic image of what the genre is presenting right now. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of felt like that that's where I was at too, because that's the kind of stuff I was watching as well as reading. And so, um, um, probably my, um, um, James Crumley is probably my favorite writer, favorite writer in the, in that kind of genre with, um, the last good kiss and, and Dancing Bear and a couple of things like that. He wrote a military book, by the way, that is just fantastic. It's actually a mystery 
disguised as a uh, military book. It's called One to Count Cadence. Oh, okay. I'll have oh. to check that out. Oh, my God. It's a good book. So, um, uh, in any event, he wrote a couple of great detectives. He's, he didn't sell a ton of copies. Uh, he was a professor at the University of uh, Montana or Montana State, one or the other. I think it might have been Montana State. In any event, so everything congealed together at the same time for me. You know, so I was asked to write a book. The things that I was watching, the things that I was reading, uh, kind of all led me towards the same thing. Now, but the next book I want to write, I'm going to try to move outside of the mystery genre and write something outside that. So. Yeah. Which means that Eric probably won't be the... Um, person I take it to because yeah. he doesn't really do that kind of thing. So. so yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, but on that, what you just spoke about. So let's say the Purple Heart Detective Agency, one of the books, gets purchased by a movie studio. Who would you want to play Roddy and Clayton? You know, I've been asked that question several times, and um, I, w I will tell you that when I was um, originally writing. Um, the first draft of the first book, The Purple Heart Detective Agency, that uh, Matthew McConaughey was actually kind of in my mind for Grace, like a younger version of him, kind of, you know? Kind of like the version you saw in um, True Detective? Or, or From a Time to Kill, his first movie? Yeah, or? right, right, that sort of thing. So, um, any event, uh, and then during the writing of that book, then HBO announced that he was starring with Woody Harrelson in True Detective, and... Um, Oh, I was heartbroken. <laughs> uh, how can you do that to me? Um, so uh, anyway, so so I, I and since then, you know, I mean, four years have passed, and so I think he's a little old to be these guys anyway at this stage. So um, um, James McAvoy. Okay. You know who I'm talking about? He yeah um, was in Wanted and yeah, and uh, he played uh, X. Um, Dr. Charles yeah. Xavier in the new X-Men. In the new X-Men. Yeah. Uh, and um, he most recently played um, uh, a turncoat sort of double agent in um, Atomic Blonde. Right. So you, um, you kind of see him as Clayton. Yeah, so he'd be good as Clayton Grace. Um, and maybe the Thor character guy? I don't know his name. Oh, Chris oh, Hemsworth? Chris Hemsworth, yeah. He'd be a good Roddy. I think uh, you'd have to CGA you know, his legs away. But if you uh, make him um, uh, have, he would be an interesting looking guy, don't you think? If you gave him a flat top and uh, made his hair black. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking Thor in a wheelchair. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thor, but, but no blonde hair. You know, right. His blonde hair has to go away. You know, He's got the right physique for that role. Um, you know, that would be his uh, Oscar shot, right? Because yeah. you know, he would be playing a serious role in you know, on... Oh my God! The Academy loves invalids, right? <laughs> so you know he's a guy in a wheelchair. It's like that scene so, in the movie Tropic Thunder where they're talking about how you got to play some kind of role like that. So yeah, I thought about that. Um, the uh, you know the role of Angie in the first movie. I mean, you know she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. You know, so blonde bombshell. You know, so Charlize Theron maybe or something. Yeah, like I was thinking that. Blake Lively. Yeah, Blake Lively would work. Yeah, so there's there's several persons in that role. You know, but there, there is a you know, craziness to her that she jumps around. She's skitterish. You know, yeah. yeah if that's a word, I'm not sure. We'll make it. A we'll word. make it a word. Yeah. Uh, wordsmith it. Um, so uh, and then in the next book, um, um, 
Grace is dating a uh, a uh, woman who's an uh, African American attorney, uh, and again, she has really short hair. Um, you know, just just barely has any hair at all. You know, so so I'm not exactly sure um, what actress would be perfect for that role. So uh, again, the excellent uh, that played Storm. What's her name? Um, Halle Berry. Halle Berry. But see, again, a little old for that part part now. So I'm not sure who would be perfect for that. Hmm. But, um, well, when they come calling, we can yeah. go there. So you say you're going to try something else for the next book, mm-hmm. for the next writing, whatever you do. Do you have any ideas for that next? Are you going to go back and take, by your admission, your two bad books and try to make them better? Or? I thought about doing, um, not the one. I don't think I, the one is ever uh, even saved one. I don't know the title of that one. It was, um, and that was one where I totally did, did not really know what I did not know. And, you know, so when you say write about what you know, you yeah. know, so these books, I mean, my wife is amazed that I can ever get on an airplane, you know, because I've Googled so many things that are so, so socially unacceptable, uh, you know, so you're probably on a watch list. Yeah, somewhere. So, you know, so, cause you know, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I've, I've downloaded many essays on the last caliphate, uh, you know, and, and uh, I've typed into Google, um, how much will a bullet deflect going through glass? <laughs> Yeah, you're on a watch list somewhere. <laughs> and, you know... Um, like, Don't go downloading a copy of the Turner Diaries, because that would yeah, just probably put then, you over um, the top. Yeah, and then um, uh, I've, I've downloaded a lot of information on sniper rifles mm-hmm. and um, hot shots on, you know, so mm-hmm. the extra extra loads and bullets to make them project even farther in a sniper rifle and things like that. So I'm sure, right, there's somebody that's like, you know, when you, when you start typing in fatwa and... Um, and sniper rifle. Yeah, there's a file on you on either the FBI, <laughs> the NSA, something like that. Yeah, but in the first book that I, you know, long ago, 20 years ago that I, I tried writing, I um, was writing about a guy who was going to become a professional tennis player. And I didn't know anything about <laughs> tennis. And uh, so anyway, so I, you know, it's just, it's horrible. So I would never show any, I've never shown anybody mm-hmm. that. So the second book that I wrote that's on the shelf is an interesting one. Um, that was one of those moments that... That's the one about the Pentagon. Yeah. And um, so it's a caper uh, thing, kind of along the lines of the Italian job movie or something like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, in which, because uh, I read an article in USA Today on an airplane, I think, that said that this is a, like a crazy number, like 1.9 million refund checks every year going Seriously. Yeah, something crazy like that. Wow. So, but you know, so a lot of those people are dead. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, for you know, one percent of the population dies every year. So, you know, so uh, there you go. So that's you know that accounts for a good number of those people because uh, there's three hundred thirty million people. So you figure you know one percent of that is you know three million. So one point nine million. You know, not all those people are filing and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, so there's people out there just that are dead. There's people that are in prison. There's people that move and they can't find them anymore. There's people that are on drugs and. You know, yeah, they you know they don't have a good address anymore. They're on the streets or whatever. They lose their home. So anyway, so I wrote a book about a guy figuring out a way to get all those checks. To get all those checks. Yeah, to start downloading checks from the IRS, and then the FBI has to go after him. You know? So uh, so that's the, the so you know it's a caper book, and I I didn't pull it off very well, but 
And it's tremendously long. Yeah, it's all right to know what I was doing. I'm sorry, I turned it up with this. Yeah, 600-page yeah, tomb for a detective novel. Or, it's a bit yeah, long. Yeah, well, well, if you could make it fantasy fiction, that would be considered a novella. Yeah, right. short. So, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but, you know it's, um, I'm not Tom Clancy, so, or even people writing as Tom Clancy now that he's dead. Yeah. So I can't, I can't get away with a 600-page book. So. Do you think, so you think it might be that one? Or no, I, I don't totally think so. I, I've already, I'm, um, I'm outlining right now, so... Uh, it's uh, more of a family saga, so sort of thing, uh, multi generational. Um, more of a, just a regular kind of fiction type book, not much of yeah, a drama. Or... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, so like I said, the, the first three books, you know, are um, soldiers with their salty language, and there's a lot of violence, and the violence can sometimes be pretty um, appalling mm -hmm. uh, at times, you know, so. I mean, generally speaking, the books are funny. I think. So I would, with what I've read of the first one, I would say absolutely. Yeah, they're funny. Um, you know, so you and you're not supposed to like be having bad nightmares about this because it's not taking place in a real enough way that you're like saying, "Oh my God, you know, I, I can't believe this is happening." Right. Although my wife one time said, "So when you're looking out the window at home, are you thinking of ways to kill people?" <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there is that uh, aspect to them. So I wanted to do something in which, you know, so like, you know, people aren't just getting killed left or right. You know, they're gotcha. thrown off of buildings and things like that. So um, one last question for you. So, again, you, you've kind of done what so many people who want to write a book have done. You wrote it, got a publisher, published, done a couple. What advice would you give as somebody that's kind of climbed this mountain? To any aspiring authors out there that are working on that book, trying to find a publisher. Um, there's, yeah, it, it's really interesting because there's, um, there is a market. You know, I, I think I read the other day that there's only there's only like fifteen hundred people in the United States right now that make their living as writers, they're full-time living as like novelists, you know, so are, you know, so it's, it's, most people do have a different job. You know, this is not going to probably, unless you just like hit the lottery, right? you know, cause I mean, there's 330 million people in the country and 1500 people have done it. So what's, you know, 1% of that is 3.3. So, what is 1500 it's there's a lot of zeros out there on your percentages okay yeah so um uh i saw this statistic yesterday so um 200,000 titles will be published this year 200,000 titles 200,000 wow. titles random house publishes a thousand titles a That is very surprising to me. I wouldn't think that. A thousand a month. A thousand wow. a month. But imagine trying to make a go of it as a young author, you know, or in a, in a newly published author with a big publishing house like Random House. Um, how are you going to get people's attention, right? If they're putting out a catalog every year with a, every month with a thousand titles in it, right? Right. So, you know, um, the good news is that 
you can self-publish if you need to go that direction. There are a lot of editing services. I actually have been seeing a commercial on television, which I was kind of surprised that they actually advertise about how you can get your novel published or your book published. Um, so there's that. Um, but there are a lot of presses out there. There's a lot of small indie um, places. Um, you're not probably going to get rich uh, doing it. So um, I've made money, but not a lot of money. So, But you you've know. enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's, so get it, it's been a cool. This has been a cool experience for me. Thank you very much. Oh, for this. It's fun to talk about the book. Um, and I did a, you know, I, I did a, um, a national public radio sort of broadcasting in in Kansas, at the University of Kansas, one time on the radio before, uh, and I'm going to be doing another one, I think, next week, Wednesday. So mm-hmm. I have, so you know, so, but you know, things have happened. Like I've got to. Um, uh, you know, participate in Books by the Banks, you know, Cincinnati's largest book, sh- uh, book show a couple times. Um, I've, uh, you know. Yeah, he told me a funny story once. Of they were, he went to, correct me, you were doing some kind of book show. Maybe it was Books on the Banks, and it was all horror. Oh, no, no, much. I went, to, it wasn't Books by the Banks, but I did, yeah. So my publishing house, okay, mm-hmm. invited me, because I'm from Kansas, to attend, um, I don't know. It was like Frightmare, but I don't know what the one. I don't know what the Kansas City version of that. But since I was from Kansas, they invited me to go. And um, so I was at, sitting at a table signing my detective books, and the table next to us was doing um, for forty dollars. They would like put a knife coming out of the side of your head, <laughs> so so you could walk around the convention hall for the next three days. Yeah, all this horror stuff, and here you are with your detective book. Yeah, so I had my detective, <laughs> my stack of detective books, and people were just looking at me like I was, you know. So um, it kind of sounds like, you know, if you're an aspiring author and you enjoy writing, just write. Yeah. And oh, look, yeah, right. and don't let it get you down. Yeah, and like I say, you know, so you can't, uh, you know, if you're writing about because you think, this is the ticket to becoming rich. That's probably not the, the, that should not be your motivation, right? Your motivation should be the, um, that you want to produce a book, you know? So the bucket list is that you wanted to write a novel or that you wanted to write a short story. You wanted to write a, a memoir and, uh, you think you have a story to share with people in that. So, and the other thing is, is that, man, I've got to meet so many people, um, you know, by going to writing um, conferences and, um, you know, so uh, book signings and different things, you know. So uh, I got to meet Jillian Flynn, you know, the, you know, um, you know she, she was um, a person. She was a person that was uh, laid off from her uh, job in New York City and didn't have a job. And her husband said, well, you know, you need to do something. So um, write a book. So she went down the basement with a you know, laptop and wrote a book. And, um, you know, did pretty well. Yeah. Right? Gone Girl, correct? Yeah, Gone Girl. Um, she told me that she had a sign above her um, basement door because she's got two little kids. Mm-hmm. And the sign above her basement door says, leave the crazy down here. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, Rock, thank you so much for giving your time and coming in today to chat with me and our listeners. I appreciate it. So, one last time. So, the first book is The Purple Heart Detective Agency. Right. The second book is Prince of the Borders. And the third book is 
Babylon Blues. The Babylon Blues. The Babylon Blues. And there is a novella then that uh, accompanies the uh, Babylon Blues, although they're sold separately on Amazon, I think is, and that's called A Brand New Me. Brand New Me. Now, um, I know they're available from Amazon, Amazon.com. It's R-O-C-K-N-E-E-L-L-Y. Mm -hmm. um, from any any place else, Barnes & Noble or any of the books? Joseph Beth um, is, is going to be carrying the book. Um uh, today, I uh, dropped off books at a uh, Roblin Point bookstore here in Covington. In case you're um, wondering, today we're recording this on September 13th. Oh, yes, I should have said that. So, That's okay. Uh, 2017. 2017, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. so the book came out um, in paper form yes, just yesterday. So the Babylon Blues did. So um, I have an um, uh, release party on next week, Wednesday, at um, Braxton Brewery. And then Saturday at um, the Trinity Gastro Pub in Westchester. Uh, the following week, I have two events uh, here in Northern Kentucky with uh, Barnes and Noble. And then um, after that, I'll have um, let's see, uh, October seventh, I'm in my hometown of Hutchison, Kansas, at Blue Word Books, and October 9th at uh, Watermark Books. So, uh, Books by the Banks, if you've never been, is a great event. Uh, Cincinnati's premier uh, book extravaganza. Lots of writers there, like 140. Yeah, I've never been able authors. to make. I've always had something I've had to do, and that's in there. So, about um, yeah, it's a it's amazing event, and you know, just tons of people that you know you want to have had a chance to meet. It's like uh, the mini Comic Con for you know for book nerds, um, and that, that sort of event is um, on October, I think, 28th. 10 to 4 at the Duke Energy Center. Awesome. Well, again, thank you very much for coming. We appreciate it. So those of you out there, go check it out. They're good books, I promise. I'm not that much of a reader. I have dyslexia, so it's hard for me to read a book, and I'm devouring this thing. Well, so, thanks a lot for that. And, yeah, so if you want to try out one of the stories and see, like I said, there is free downloads available on uh, Amazon with um, – uh, friends with benefits and fiends with benefits so you can get those and check them out and see the writing style and you can see roddy and grace uh and their interactions uh so um you know uh, somebody told me one time that the books are mystery stories no they said they're um guy relationship stories uh disguised as detective books the guy really that's a great note to end on. Guy relationship <laughs> stories disguised as a deck to book. So again, Rocks, thank you all for coming in. And thank you all for listening. Again, The Rambling Intellect, available on both iTunes and Google Play. And if you like what you're here, hearing, like the stories we tell, please give us a nice review. Give us a thumbs up. Give us five stars, whatever it is. Maybe I can eventually crack into the upper echelons of their page and get some more listeners. And please refer them to other people. Again, let's make this trend. Yes, please. And uh, what is your? You have a website as well, Rock. Um, yeah, it's a WordPress. Um, Rock Neely at WordPress.com, I think. So, but um, so visit my author page if you want on Facebook. So Rock uh, Neely author. And so that would be a, a good place to as well to see where future signings are coming up. Awesome. Again, thank you for coming in. Thank you all for listening. Like I said, this is the Rambling Intellect. I am John DeBerry, and until our next time, keep on rambling. Thank you very much.